Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was, and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I chat with Jordan O'Sullivan from Shaping Minds. Together with Jared Bussell and our book Wadana, they have been supporting teachers in implementing the science of learning in the classroom through practical professional learning combined with lesson demonstrations. For this podcast, Jordan goes through the simple memory model, the process for building a mathematics curriculum, delivering effective pre-L, and much, much more. Just a pre-warning, I get a bit excited about having the opportunity to nerd out with Jordan about cognitive science, and I derail his thinking a couple of times. Luckily, he's a pro and was able to get us back on track. So, here is my conversation with Jordan O'Sullivan. Really looking forward to today's conversation with Jordan O'Sullivan. Jordan is one of the directors of Shaping Minds Australia. But before we look into your current work, Jordan, can you please tell us a bit about your journey and how you ended up in the position that you were in today? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, firstly, thanks. Thanks, Brendan, for having me on. It's a real... Uh, pleasure and, and honor to to join you and yeah congrats on the work that you've been doing it's just fantastic um you know the pod's awesome you've had such such great guests so feeling like a real imposter being amongst them uh but you know we we run with the life fake it till you make it so we'll, we'll do that again today <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah so uh like in terms of our journey uh so kind of began um Jared and I met and we, we were teaching the same school together and the northwest of WA in, in the Pilbara region. So uh, they're currently break, bracing for a cyclone up there. I hope they're all good. But oh, so the, the, yeah, the Pilbara is where most of the iron ore in Australia or worldwide is actually shipped out of. But so when we were teaching up there, we each had our own kind of Damascus moments where we, we realised that we weren't really having an impact on the kids and having an impact um, first and foremost, but particularly on the kids that needed us the most. So, you know, Jared and I taught middle and upper primary. We had kids coming to us that couldn't read or they couldn't do the fundamentals in maths, they couldn't write. And we we just had no idea how to help them uh, and what we needed to do to, to close the gaps. Uh, and, we, you know, we started to think to ourselves, like, why, why am I doing this? Why am I working, you know, 60 hours a week at a job that I'm actually really bad at? So, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> And I don't know, I think maybe that's a common feeling for teachers, but yeah, it put us on the cusp of really pulling the plug and, and leaving teaching. Uh, and then we we got lucky. So, you know, at the same time as we were, we were in these negative spirals, uh, our leadership team were, were being proactive and they were sourcing professional learning uh, and they ended up choosing really well, whether that was by uh, luck or by design, <laughs> I'm not too sure, but we started to receive PL and coaching from two really important people in particular. So that was Dr. Lorraine Hammond and, and also John Fleming. So they're, they're people who they, they know and they knew the evidence and they, they know how to translate it into classroom practice and, and really kind of, I guess, saved our careers. Um, you know, at Shaping Minds, we talk about how we stand on the shoulders of giants in, in terms of the work that we do. Uh, and they're certainly two of the giants that, um, that helped us so much in, in our career and, and to help us build the knowledge to be able to do the work that we do now. So, you know, on the back of that PL and, and the coaching that we received from those, those two people, we started to implement the evidence-based instructional strategies and we started to have these anecdotal wins with our, our kids, you know. As our kids started to be successful, um, their behaviour improved and, you know, as teachers we just started to feel better. Uh, so yeah, we were having those anecdotal wins up north, and and then uh, the principal, uh, principal at that school, after you know more than a decade up in the Pilbara, uh, leading that school, headed to Perth, and we we kind of followed, and we so Jared and I and, and some others landed at the same school again uh, with our principal Pauline, 
Um, and yeah, what we did was at that school, we, we hit the ground running and we, we, from the, from the outset, we, we started to implement the strategies that we'd learned, uh, in our time up North and yeah, what, what happened as a result of the, the whole school change that, that Pauline led was that the student outcomes significantly improved. So the, the school, uh, below average SEI school, uh, and you know we were we were underperforming even against life schools uh, in those early days. But you know as a result of implementing those evidence based uh, strategies, uh, we started to outperform even the national averages. And so 2018, the school outperformed uh, the national average in in all of the the ten NAPLAN areas. Um, I think around that same time, like the year threes, nearly surpassed uh, the year five national writing average in yeah in writing obviously so yeah all of those anecdotal wins that we we were having started to actually be borne out in in the data uh, from the school and then yeah well, what happened as a result of those increasing uh, results is kind of it generated a lot of intrigue uh, from other schools and other school leaders and other teachers and yeah in in a couple of years there we had you know literally thousands of of visitors come through the school to see what was happening in in classrooms uh, and then kind of on the back of that we got i guess pulled out into that pl provider space and and that's where we sit now so but it just feels really good to be paying it forward you know like i spoke about john and rain they they helped us so much um so we're really grateful that we have the opportunity now to be able to support our colleagues and our fellow teachers and that's really what shaping minds is all about it's about uh providing access to to teachers the same knowledge and strategies that helped us so much in our career yeah you know and and you spoke about how so many teachers go through that feeling where they don't feel like they're making as big an impact as they probably could be um you know i, I myself i actually left teaching for a couple of years yeah uh, wow. you know, through that feeling of, of um, you know, like demoralised and and yeah. not not being able to make um, yeah the the difference that you you hope to make as a teacher, uh, yeah. so I can definitely relate to what you're talking about there and and you know I didn't have a uh, Lorraine Hammond walk mm. through my door to kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, show me the ropes. Didn't get lucky. No, I didn't get lucky in in that sense. But um, you know, I'd, I'd like to just kind of backtrack a little bit and look at what were some of the key differences that you made to your teaching during that. Um, you know, that, that stage of uh, learning from Lorraine and, and John? Yeah, I think we kind of, well, I guess we went from being at sea in terms of what we should actually be doing and and what's impactful to, to having um, a really clear focus about the practices that are evidence-based, so the, the practices that align, align with cognitive science. So, um, you know, like a, a really well-established idea within cognitive science is is the importance of spaced practice. So, you know, that time we didn't we didn't have a mechanism to provide that spaced practice for for students. So, with our work with Lorraine and, and John, we started to implement what you know what John calls um, warm-ups, and warm-ups are all based around the idea of providing that that spaced practice uh, so that we can provide enough repetitions so that students can move information into long-term memory. So it was, it was really about having a, a shared understanding uh, across the whole school about what are the pedagogical practices, what are the instructional routines that align with uh, the evidence base, and then let's let's all let's all go for those. Let's all implement those in our classrooms. And um, yeah, it was that that consistency across the school, but also you know each individual teacher being empowered with the actual um, the practical things they can do in their classroom that align with the with the cognitive science and the evidence base, yeah. And so what was the general feel like amongst staff as you were you were making these changes to your practice? Yeah, look, um, it probably reflects how change occurs in a lot of schools. You know, you have different groups of teachers, some that are really enthusiastic, some that are that are that are skeptical, but you know, over time, the results from from teachers who were implementing those those strategies, you know, became really hard to ignore, and uh, you really generate this appetite and this momentum in a school um, when you we have that data behind you. So, yeah, like you know, we had uh, teachers at different stages of their career and um, at different stages of willingness, but you know, over time, um, we we kind of all aligned and. 
uh, you know, some of the things are important too in terms of school-based low-variance curriculum and things like that in helping us to align. But, yeah, uh, I really um, like what Ray Boyd says about, you know, change that's, you know, it's it's not easy. It takes a lot of hard work and that's, that's kind of um, what happened at that school, yeah. Yeah, awesome. And, and I guess it uh, it shows that you had a lot of teachers kind of jumping on board by the fact that they you, you all followed your, your principal to uh, her next school as well. So, um, you know, it, it just goes to show that it's enjoyable to, to teach in this manner, you know, when you are feeling successful, when you're getting results um, and you want to keep keep going with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why teachers get into teaching, isn't it? To, to have an impact on their students and Obviously, having impact academically is is part of that, and that's what we weren't able to achieve in those early days. But we were uh, once we'd aligned practices and and had that professional learning and that coaching from the experts. Yeah. And so you mentioned uh, space practice before, but what what else have you learned from the science of learning and cognitive science that that it's had the the biggest impact on you? Yeah, there's there's so much, and we're always always learning. Uh, you know, I've picked up so much from the guests that you've had on, on previous apps as well. So always learning. But I guess the, the biggest thing that we've learned is just how important models of cognition are. So that's things like the information processing model or Willingham simple model of memory. So I guess the trouble is that they, like on the surface, they seem like such basic ideas. Um, there's actually so much involved in those models and so many ways that uh, we can use them to inform a teaching practice, and that's even the most nuanced of instructional decisions. We can we can use those as a as a guide and a framework for informing this and and making decisions about what's going to be the most impactful way to to teach students. So, uh, what if I, I just talk to like Willingham's simple model of memory for a bit? Would that would that be all right? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so I guess um, yeah, maybe maybe for your listeners. I've always wanted to say this, yeah. <laughs> if they're <laughs> unfamiliar with the model, maybe if they're not driving to, do a quick Google and bring up, bring that model up and you'll be able to refer to it as we talk to it, uh, Willingham's simple model of memory. Yep. So, I might, yeah, I might the, share the, a, um, one of the OlliCav uh, graphics of it. I'll put that on yeah, the show great. notes. Yeah. yeah, excellent. That's that's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the, the first aspect of that model uh, is the environment on the left-hand side there. Uh, and that's that's recognition that there's potentially lots and lots of information or stimuli in the environment. But as teachers, we usually only want to focus kids or we want kids focusing on or attending to like one of those pieces of information at a time. So even that, you know, part of the model informs classroom practice. So we've, we've got to set up our classrooms and design our instruction in a way that removes unwanted stimuli from the environment. Um, and then when we make it easier for students to identify and focus on on what we actually want them to be to be focusing on. So when we um, when we deliver PL on this, we kind of we we roll that into making a link about uh, desk arrangements. Yeah, you know, I think it was in the early two thousands. Fred Jones released a classroom management book uh, called Tools for Teaching, and there's a really great chapter in there about desk arrangement, and it makes you know a really great case for particular desk arrangements that support students to to focus attention so you know eliminating distractions as well as creating a, a path for teachers to move around the room as as efficiently as possible um so maybe i'll maybe i'll find a chapter summary or, or something like that. it's hard to describe the desk setup through this this audio medium yeah. um yeah so even that part of the model inf informs yeah instruction and, and lots of little decisions that we make that improve the impact of our instruction so then, you know, uh, next to the environment, the next part of the model is attention. And that recognizes the fact that attention is, is really a prerequisite to learning. You, you can't learn what you're not paying attention to. So it kind of sounds like a platitude, doesn't it? Um, that attention is a prerequisite to learning, but it, that's had such a huge impact on us because when you take a deep dive into it, there's, there's so many uh, good ideas that link to that and link to classroom practice. So you know, because attention is so important in that process of learning, we we kind of we really need to be thoughtful as teachers. It's it's critical. So we actually have to have a plan for that about how we gain and maintain a focused student attention. So that that kind of means that we we have to know and we have to practice strategies that are geared towards achieving those things. So you know, like we we lean heavily on the EDI engagement norms, but there's 
there's lots of suites of of strategies that are, that are geared towards that. We've really got to know those and have practiced those so that we can use those automatically as teachers to to gain, maintain, and focus student attention. So yeah, even that little part of that model, that attention, that, that informs classroom practice so much and so much of what we talk about within our professional learning. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah. Um, it highlights the need for having routines as well. You know, when we're looking yeah. at the environment and attention and, and that just allows uh, our students to use their working memory on what we want them to be focusing on and not necessarily, um, you yeah. know, thinking about, well, what do I have to do here? How do I enter the classroom? You know, where do I have to sit? Yeah. All of those little things that go through, through our students' minds, we can kind of yeah. alleviate that pressure, can't we? Mm. Yeah, like we we improve learning and, you know, we'll talk about cognitive load here, I'm sure. But yeah, absolutely. So a great example is is pair share. So pair share is an EDI engagement norm. And, you know, we can implement pair share. We can implement it and then we can implement it well in a way that, you know, really supports students and alleviates working memory burden. So that's about exactly what you're talking about is establishing those routines. So, you know, having A and B partners where each student knows if they're an A or if they're a B, because if I say, oh, you know, turn and talk now, talk to the person next to you, the students are thinking about, oh, who needs to talk first or, or even who am I talking to? Who's my partner? And, yeah. you know, as you say, if they're thinking about those things and that information is burdening, those thoughts are burdening their working memory and, and they're able to direct less um, cognitive effort to actually what you want them to be talking about or what you want them to be learning. So it's, it's a really good point that, uh, that routines are critical and, you know, those those engagement norms or if it's an interactive active participation strategy, whatever it is, they become really the foundation for developing those routines. They're the things that you develop routines for uh, within your classroom. So, yeah, they're absolutely important for directing attention. But, yeah, as you say, for the development of routines for and then that flow on the importance of classroom management, things like that as well, yeah, they're absolutely foundational to to. Uh, explicit instruction and to you know high impact teaching whole class teaching yeah absolutely all right let's go i i uh, I, I took you off track from your, your <laughs> no model. that's okay yeah, yeah so let's get back more attention weren't we so yeah um, uh, yeah so the next part is uh, working memory so when we pay attention to information it enters our working memory and working memory is where the thinking is done so in Willingham's simple model of memory in that diagram is represented by that small circle. So that uh, reflects what you were saying before. You know, our working memories are constrained both in terms of duration and capacity. We can't hold much new information in our working memory and it doesn't stay long without rehearsal. So it's, it's a really critical idea because learning is impeded if working memory uh, is overloaded. So we've got to teach in a way, we've got to use strategies that, that manage that cognitive load. And I know you'll, you'll want to talk more specifically about maths lately, uh, later, so um, might, uh, we'll, link, we'll link back to that when we uh, come to that maths discussion. Yeah. So then, yeah, so the working memory is constrained. That's an important idea. And then the next part of, you know, the cognitive architecture that makes up Williams' model is, is long-term memory. And that's represented differently to working memory in the model. And that's because it's it's theoretically infinite in capacity. Uh, and, of course, you know, the goal of teaching is to help students move information to long-term memory. And learning is widely defined as that change in long-term memory. So, you know, moving information from working memory to long-term memory, that's called learning or encoding. Uh, and then what's important there is we learn or we encode what we think about. So because this is the case, you know, as teachers, we've got to help students. Or we, we have to create the conditions in which students are likely to actually be thinking about what we want them to, to be learning. So we, we've got to step back from our instruction or the activities that we want students to do and to actually analyse whether students will likely be thinking about what we want them to be learning or if they'll be thinking about something else for the majority of that, that lesson or that session. And that, that might be something else that's kind of related to what we want them to learn, but it's not actually the thing that we want them to learn. So, yeah, we've got to focus our instruction around that, that learning goal, what we actually want students to learn and ensure that that's, you know, the, the, the chances are high that that's actually what they're thinking about. Uh, so that's, that's the, the importance of encoding or, or moving information from working memory to long-term memory. Uh, but it's not a one-way street between working memory and long-term memory. So we're actually drawing information from our long-term memory all the time. 
so in Willingham's model, um, it's called remembering or retrieval when we bring information from long-term memory into our working memory. And, and you know, again, it's a, another part of that model. And every part of that model has really huge implications for, for classroom teaching. So I guess the first thing is that that's um, related to that is that we learn new ideas in relation to ideas we already know. So, you know, we want to prompt students to bring related information into their working memory so they can think about that in relation to the new information that we want to learn, they can make connections and then uh, more effectively store that knowledge. But then the other important point about remembering or retrieval is that its impact on actually embedding information more deeply in long-term memory is huge. So when we retrieve information from long-term memory, it strengthens the position of that information in long-term memory, kind of like that that old saying, use it or lose it. You know, if, if we don't retrieve that knowledge, we'll eventually forget it. Uh, we won't be able to use it further down the line. So, yeah, I guess, you know, that's a, a bit of a whirlwind tour of that model. But for us, it's it's those models and really understanding them deeply uh, and how they link to other ideas like cognitive load theory and then how they link and inform classroom practice that, that's had the biggest impact on us for sure. They're, they're the most important things that we've learned, absolutely. Yeah, I entirely agree. And, and I think it just really helps with your decision making, you know, as a teacher and a school leader, because you've got to make, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of decisions, you know, every lesson. And yeah. you're constantly um, having to do it like in front of a live audience. Yeah, um, absolutely. yeah and, and, I, and I just find that that part like so tricky for, uh, you know, yeah. especially novice teachers because they've got to take you know, their own cognitive load is uh, yeah. overloaded. You know, and so, yeah. yeah, it's, I think the more that you kind of know about this stuff and how learning happens, because I know like, so after I, I was originally a high school teacher and when I transitioned into yep. being a primary teacher, um, mm. the thing that got me a lot was the curse of knowledge. And I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't get into um, speaking at their level, you know, so con try, yeah, connecting okay. up the information that they already had to what yeah. I was trying to teach them. And so there was yeah. there was just no connection there. Um, the language mm. I was using was was uh, too yeah. difficult for them to understand. And, uh, you know, the analogies or stories that I was telling it was just going mm. over their head. Um, <laughs> you know, so it, when yeah. I did reflect back after, you know, learning about uh, Willingham's model, it, it made me realise, oh, well, that, you know, this is the reasons why mm. it, it wasn't working. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it just it really helps your actual teaching in, in your day-to-day -day practice. Mm. Yeah, I really like that too because, you know, obviously very self-reflective and it's kind of like, um, I guess, why we are in this space now is because of mistakes we've made in the past and, and recognising the flaws that we've had and only and it's only through doing that that you can actually investigate better ways of doing things and, and improve teaching practice. So, yeah, um, yeah, but as absolutely as you say, that that model has has to be kind of the foundation for the the decision making, and it, and it helps to have that as a framework and to be able to link. Oh, here's a new practice that I could implement. You know, does does that make sense? Would does that align with cognitive science? Um, so it really helps us to, as you say, make those decisions about how we spend our finite time as a teacher. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we've just touched on the science of learning and, and you've given us a, a bit of an overview in 10 minutes there. But, um, you know, what does what does this look like in mathematics? You know, that, that seems to be a bit of a focus area for you guys. And and I think it's, um, you know, a, an area which a lot of Australian educators are, are really looking at at the moment. And, yeah. you know, they've been exposed to the science of reading, but now they're starting to ask questions about, you know, so what does this look like in, yeah. in math? And so, yeah, what, what does it look like in maths from your perspective? Yeah, well, you know, firstly, we we develop uh, we deliver PL in in multiple learning areas and and phases. I guess the 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 focus on maths come about out of necessity. You know, like it is as you say, a lot of time's been spent on the science of reading. Maths has kind of been neglected, maybe up until this point. So there's kind of like a gap in terms of what's available to support teachers, uh, and that's why we've we've been doing quite a, a bit more work in terms of releasing resources and curriculum documents in maths because that seems to be where the gaps are um, in in resources for teachers. You know, there's there's plenty of scopes and sequences for for teaching early reading, and it might be the opposite issue. Maybe there's too many to pick from, but you know, in maths there there seems to be a lack of really fine grained um, documents that can guide teachers in terms of delivery of content. Yeah, so let me, I'll, I'll pick out a couple of things that I just spoke about then and, and make that link to maths instruction. So 
one thing I mentioned was the simple fact that, you know, fundamentally we learn and remember what we spend time and efforts thinking about. Uh, so recently I'm, I met and I listened to Daisy Christodoulou and I know you had her on a previous app and yeah, she's, she's fantastic, but she is a really great example that stuck with me because it's, it's something that I, I did uh, at one stage in my teaching career. So um yeah I, I needed to teach kids about fractions and you know specifically you know, dividing shapes into given fractions and i got an idea from somewhere that i thought would be really engaging you know so i thought oh, i'll teach these fractions we'll make some mini pizzas and then at the end you know we'll, we'll cut them up into different fractions you know and i thought that because it was hands-on and it's engaging in a fun way that you know that would engage kids in the learning and they'd be successful in learning and remembering that information about fractions but what I ignored was the fact that we learn what we think about. And, you know, for the bulk of that lesson, students were thinking about making pizzas and probably eating pizzas. They, they, you know, they weren't thinking about fractions. You know, at best they spent a, a, a fraction of time thinking about fractions. So, you know, when we're, as I said before, when we're planning our instruction, we've got to be really clear about what we want students to learn. And then we have to design those learning opportunities in a way that ensures that that's what the students are thinking about and, and you know, not something else or not something else that's kind of related to, to what we're trying to teach. Uh, so that's, that's one important point. And then, you know, you, you've highlighted a couple of uh, times that uh, another important thing from the cognitive science is that our, our working memories are constrained. So one of the contributors to a working memory burden is extraneous cognitive load. And one source of this is inefficient teaching practices. So I've got an analogy that I use sometimes here. It's a little trickier without a visual to communicate it, but I'll have a go. So imagine you're, you're driving a car from point A to point B, but you, you don't have much fuel left in your car. You know, you, your fuel light's on. You know, in that situation, you'd, you'd be really careful to take the most direct route because you don't have much fuel left in your tank. And, you know, if you take an indirect or an inefficient route towards that destination, you might not actually make it to that to that destination. So if we link this to classrooms, you know, when we're teaching in a classroom, we're trying to get students from point A to point B. And point A is a point where they don't understand, and point B is a is the point where they do understand. And then, you know, what stands between the students, the road in this analogy, the thing that connects the students to the knowledge is our teaching. It's us. So, you know, if we teach in an inefficient way, the students need to do this extra unnecessary mental work. They need to unnecessarily use their uh, working memory resources to try and understand what we're teaching, you know, much like the car needs to use extra fuel if we take an inefficient route. So, yeah, when we teach inefficiently, we, we create this working memory burden because the students have to do extra unnecessary mental work in order to understand that information. So then the, the question becomes, you know, well, what is efficient instruction? And I guess one of the most efficient and really well-established ways to teach students in, in maths in particular is to use worked examples. But what's really important uh, is the language there. So, uh, using worked examples well requires much more than just like the teacher saying, all right, we're learning this today. Uh, here's how you do one, you know, watch me, maybe copy it in your books or whatever. And now could do, do one questions one to 15 in your textbook. So yeah. Okay. On the surface, that seems like, oh, the teacher's using a worked example. They model an example for students, yeah. but you know, from the, the literature, um, you know, and, and even logic tells us we, we've got to use the worked examples better than that. We have to use them in a way that guides students in a way that takes them progressively, but efficiently from something that they can't do to something that they can do. So, yeah, a great way to use uh, worked examples is a strategy that I know you've, you've mentioned on previous episode, example problem pairs. So this is, this is where we alternate between modelling a worked example and then students completing a really similar problem for themselves. So it's, you know, I do something, you do something, I do something, you do something, I do something, you do something. And then each time we alternate, we might focus on a slightly different way of executing that skill or a slight increase in difficulty so that we can progressively build mastery or competence or understanding. And that's, that's efficient instruction. That, that and forth between the teacher and student, that's, that's a way to efficiently get students from point A to point B in terms of their understanding. Yeah, and, and what you've really pointed out there is it's that's the we do phase done properly. You know, a lot of the Absolutely. times 
we, we tend to um, skip the we do phase or, or we think mm. that we've done it, you know, when we might, yeah. we might do a worked example, like you said. Um, and then yeah. we have the students still sitting on the floor. They might have their mini whiteboards and, and they're watching us do it. And then we set a question for them to do, but it's yeah. actually independent practice. We're, we're not actually yeah. doing it together. It's just independent yeah. practice. But we have the illusion mm. that it's a we do because mm. they're sitting with us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, so that's exactly right. So, you know, for a long period, that's what I thought a WeDo was. It's when, and I thought, you know, the whiteboards were a feature of the WeDo. So I thought, oh, you know, if, if I have the students working on their whiteboards and that means it's a WeDo, but actually all they're doing in, in the example that you, you highlight there is working independently on their whiteboards, you know, and maybe we have them chin it and we check from saying we get some feedback. But yeah, there's there's much more effective uh, things that we can do within the we do that actually involves uh, the, the teacher and the students working together. So I guess the difference is like we do isn't all of the students working at the same time on the same thing. The we do is the teacher and the students working together in some way. And that alternation, that frequent alternation between teacher and student that is example problem pairs is one way that the teacher and the students can can work together. That's the we part, the teacher and the students, not all of the students together. Yeah, that's, that's a, yeah, spot on point. Absolutely something, uh, a mistake that I've made uh, in, in my teaching. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't imagine it's a common or misunderstanding for sure. Yeah, and so I guess just um, you know, still looking at at maths, and I know that one of the the big areas that that you guys um do a lot of work on is like the the daily reviews or retrieval practice, and you know, space and interleaving. Do you want to just talk about like that as well? Yeah, so I guess yeah. Well, so what relates to that curriculum, and also I guess back to this discussion about working memories being constrained. Is something that's really critical in maths, well, in all learning areas, but in maths as well, and uh, maybe in particular, is this uh, breaking complex skills into smaller, more manageable instructional units. So the state and national curriculums that, that we have um, are mostly made up a really broad statement of complex things that students should be able to do and understand. But the, I guess the problem with that is that each of those statements is kind of the end game. That's where we want to get students to but it doesn't give us a roadmap about how we get there. So we need to break those complex skills into instructional units so that we can step-by-step step get to those get to those endpoints without overloading working memory. So I know uh, Karen Zanatopoulos spoke on your previous episode, right? She, she talked about how it's a mistake to try and use word problems as the basis for teaching math. So problem solving is, is complex. You know, that's that's the end game. What we need to do is, is break uh, those, those complex skills down and think about all of the precursor and knowledge and skills that students need to be able to do and understand in order to achieve that, that end game of which might be problem solving. And, and once we've identified those things, we, we need to teach that precursor knowledge and skills in an efficient and a logical sequence as well. So, you know, when we isolate knowledge and skills like this, it, it, it also means that, you know, we can pinpoint with our assessments or our check for understanding exactly where students are stuck. If I get students to solve a problem, and Karen made this point, and they can't do it, I don't really have any idea about exactly where they're getting stuck or what the gaps are in their knowledge. But if we identify the instructional units that make up more complex skills, we teach them, we assess them, we're able to get a much clearer picture about where, where the gaps might be. So yeah, I guess that's that's one in the importance of that um, the curriculum in terms of um, managing cognitive resources as well. Um, what was the actual question you just asked before I went on that slight tangent? Um, yeah, I guess just um, looking at like interleaving and space practice, yeah. and you know how you've kind of um, taken that into yeah. account. Yeah, so I guess. Um, yeah, with those curriculum documents, it's kind of, it's it's really the big difference between the documents that we've written to how mass is traditionally sequenced, I guess, in that what we did was we avoided uh, extended blocking of related learning in, intentions. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the, the reason why we do that is so that we can make use of the, the power of daily review. So we can teach uh, a precursor skill, you know, a, an individual learning intention that makes up a, a more complex skill and then uh, provide a couple of weeks of practice of that 
in daily review to, to build mastery, uh, to build automaticity. And then after that, we can add the next layer of, of challenge or the next re related learning intention. So, you know, I could teach, um, could teach students how to use the vertical written addition algorithm without regrouping. And, but then it might be a number of weeks before I teach them how to do it with regrouping. But in between that time, they've had mountains of practice on, on achieving that skill, that, that more fundamental skill, before we add that next layer of, of difficulty. So this is kind of one of the, I guess it's one of the frequently asked questions that we get about the documents. So I remember a teacher said to me uh, recently, like, oh, won't, won't the kids get confused because there's such a big gap between those related learning intentions, like won't they forget? You know, by the time you you come to teach, you know, a couple of weeks have passed, you come to teach that next learning intention, won't they forget what they've done? But the kids, the students shouldn't feel that gap because what's happening in between those two lessons that you, you're teaching is that just that daily practice within daily review. So it shouldn't be the case that kids are thinking back to two or three weeks ago to try and remember that, that particular yeah. skill. No, they're, they're practicing it a lot in between those two lessons. Yeah. So um, yeah, I guess the only reason why you would space learning intentions like we have is because you've got a mechanism like daily review to provide just in between. If you're not doing that, then, you know, it's, it's probably better, better to block them for, for the reasons that, that teacher was raising. Yeah, so data review is powerful, but we can increase its powerful uh, powerfulness, if that's a word, uh, when we sequence that curriculum in that way where we leave a little gap between related learning intentions. Yeah, and so in terms of the actual sequencing of your concepts, what sorts of things did you consider or, or what bits of research um, did you lean heavily on? Yeah, look, it's... Um... Yeah, I, I guess the 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 biggest bit of uh, research that relates to that sequencing decision is is the importance of spaced practice. Um, I think so. We use the word interleaving, and it's kind of a nice adjective to describe how that curriculum is sequenced. But um, I guess the the issue with calling it an interleaved curriculum is like it conflates the fact that there's another term in cognitive science uh, interleaving um, which refers to something different you know which refers to how we uh, present practice items within a single practice session um, so yeah, I guess the interleaving research for the most part doesn't necessarily apply to the way that those those lessons are sequenced out um, I wonder if maybe if I, I talk through that that process of of generating that curriculum, whether it might um, might be might be helpful, might answer those questions along the way. Yeah, yeah. So the first step for us is an important one: is is determining what the pedagogical elements are, or what the instructional routines are, what the instructional elements are, for which the content will be delivered. So for us, that's a daily review, which is you know a twenty minute session. And then the other component is three explicit lessons occurring every week. So that's actually a really important first step because one of the difficulties that I see with some school-based low-variance curriculums that, that teachers show me is that the content might be detailed, it might be mapped out well, but there hasn't necessarily been the thought put into exactly how that content will be delivered in the classroom. So there's kind of a mismatch between the how and the what. You can't, you probably can't map out um, content properly without knowing how it's going to actually be covered. So, you know, like take daily review, for example, if, so we define that as a 20 ish minute session. And obviously that informs how much content we provide in the curriculum for daily review. If we said the daily review is a 10 ish minute session, then we need to provide half the content within our curriculum documents. So the, the the content that we, we map out of the content that we scope and sequence has to really closely link to the actual classroom practices that are being used to deliver that, that content. Uh, so that's that's the first decision. And then we can, we can go about actually uh, writing the curriculum documents to suit those instructional elements. And it's a really tedious <laughs> and time-consuming exercise. I have crawl my flashbacks when I'm <laughs> <laughs> when I think about it, but I'll talk you through it. So, um, yeah, I guess I hinted at a couple of things already, but so we wrote the documents so they simultaneously satisfied the Australian Curriculum Version 9 and the New South Wales sy Syllabus. So 
they were the starting points. And then what we did was we considered all of those content descriptors or the statements as the end goals. That's where we wanted students to get to. And then we went through that process of breaking down those more complex learning, uh, complex goals into more manageable instructional units, which is kind of a neater archer term. Uh, and then, you know, what I mean by an instructional unit is a learning intention or objective that can be taught realistically in a single lesson without a high likelihood of overloading working memory. So if we break down a, content, a curriculum content descriptor into more manageable instructional units, and we go through them, we go, oh, this one here, actually, we can break that down further. So it's kind of a process of, of uh, repeatedly breaking down learning intentions into, into smaller and smaller instructional units until you yep. land on a, a set of instructional units that it, it seems like they can each be taught in a single lesson and, and build together to, to achieve that end goal. Um, so yeah, that's that's what we did. We went through those curriculum content descriptors. We we uh, scoped uh, or listed out all those individual instructional units, and then we kind of had to go back through and add anything that we thought would be important for students to know or practice, but didn't get included through that process of breaking down the the curriculum content descriptors. So you know, there's often stuff. Um, say I'm in year five. There's often stuff that doesn't appear within the Australian curriculum, for example, but that I still need to give students this on. Maybe that's maybe it's a feature of the year four curriculum. So we still need to go through the process of, of including that stuff as well. And then there's also like more fundamental facts uh, that we need to give students repetitions to and practice of that you know, we might not land on as an instructional unit through that process of breaking down the content descriptors. So we went through that. And so those two processes together is, is creating the scope of a scope and sequence. You know, the scope is the list of all the things that we, we, we want to cover. Um, yeah, so that's the scope. And then we talked about the two instructional elements being daily review and lessons. So the first step in sequencing them is to actually go, hey, which of these learning intentions? Because keep in mind, like when we went through those processes of scoping, we ended up with over 200, you know, learning intentions for each year level, which you can't dedicate or listen to each of those things. So we've got to, got to go through and, and use our judgment. And we collaborated with a lot of teachers to do this is to identify which of those learning intentions would need the more rigorous instruction um, that occurs in an explicit lesson. And they're the ones that we flagged uh, to be uh, explicit lessons or taught in an explicit lesson. And then the other learning intentions are dedicated or covered solely through daily review. So um, they're taught and practiced within daily review. So really short and sharp, um, efficient opportunities for, uh, for teaching and for also for practice that occurs over a long, a long period of time. Um, yeah, so uh, then, so I talked about three lessons. Um, it's kind of a good point. Like another common question we get is, you know, why is there only three lessons for each week? Yeah. Um, but also, you know, why do only 30 of the weeks have lessons dedicated to them? So you know, 30 weeks have lessons because the first two weeks of each year and the last two weeks of each year, and the last week and first week of each term don't have any lessons specified. So we, we wanted to do both of those things. Firstly, limit it to three weeks, but also limit it to 30 weeks where the lessons are three lessons, limited to three lessons and limited to 30 weeks in which the lessons appear because we want to, and, you know, we're teachers, so we, we get the realities of teaching. There's lots of interruptions that occur. So we want to give teachers an opportunity to be able to catch up if they fall behind. Uh, we also know that just because you teach a lesson doesn't mean uh, you've necessarily done it well. Maybe students don't understand. There's got to be opportunities or time built in for reteaching certain, certain lessons, certain concepts. Uh, and then, yeah, I guess Karen uh, made a great point too about, like, the importance of things like snakes and ladders. You know, we've got to actually build in time uh, or ensure that teachers have time for those beneficial, playful experiences uh, as well. So that's why we, we limit it to, to that many lessons. So because we limit it to that many lessons, it, it really highlights the importance of really thoroughly going through and deciding which ones or which of those learning intentions probably need to be given more rigorous instruction uh, for. And the rest can be taught in data review, really in short, sharp, little sessions and just given over time so students can achieve um, mastery. Yeah, so that's, looking, uh, 
yes, yeah, it's, it's quite clear that you've, you've put a lot of thought into this uh, process. And, um, you know, so firstly, like, what was the purpose behind it? And, and then secondly, which kind of links to it anyway, but how are schools and teachers using it now? Yeah, so the, the purpose was uh, to support teachers and to, to help reduce workload. So uh, everything we do at Shape Minds is about supporting our colleagues and, and, and fellow teachers. So we just thought if we went through that process, uh, if we put the, the hours into that, that it would help a lot of teachers and un- unburden a lot of teachers. And yeah, we mean all teachers, but I think, you know, particularly new teachers, new teachers that might be struggling, particularly with workload, much like we did when we were new teachers. So yeah, we, we uh, get a lot of uh, joy out of the fact that these seem to be helping to reduce uh, teachers' workload and, and supporting them in that way. Um, yeah, and then the second part was the how are teachers using them? Or, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess there's oh, a range of how they're implemented. Uh, so we're getting a little bit of feedback that, yeah, so some schools are taking on as, as a whole school um, that they're going to be the documents that they they use to guide them, their mathematics content uh, delivery. Uh, some individual teachers are using it. Um, and then, yeah, so we, we uh, I guess part of the story is that the, the first instance of uh, wanting to do these curriculums came about from our work with uh, Catholic Education Canberra Goldburn in the Catalyst project there. So they wanted some some primary math documents to use across their whole system. Um, and then, yeah, so we, we offered to do that work for free on the proviso that we could release those documents freely to, to all teachers. Uh, but now they use those across their system. And yeah, they've engaged uh, OCA um, to, to create uh, resources, lesson resources and data review resources that marry up or match up to those curriculum documents, which uh, we think is just fantastic. There's you know, a common barrier to implementing this type of instruction is that the workload needed to create the resources uh, to, to do it. So yeah, we're, we're really excited and happy that OCA are kind of filling that gap for teachers. And again, you know, it's, it's great that, that we're reducing workload for teachers and that's such a, a hot topic at the moment, yeah. Yeah, 100% there. Um, look, I just want to kind of shift our conversation a little bit and look at another key area of your job right now, and that's at delivering effective professional learning. You know, so what sorts of things have you have you learned about that, that whole process? Yes, so, yeah, we've, we've learned so much. Um, guess our most important learnings can relate back to what it means to actually respect teachers and respect teaching. And I think you know, every PL provider would say they respect teachers, but what we did was uh, think, you know, what what are the things, what are the actions that actually demonstrate that we, we do respect teachers and we respect their work that they're doing, we respect those workload, the workload that they have, because those actions speak louder than words. So I guess one thing that we think is really important is that we we don't ask teachers to do anything that we don't do ourselves or aren't willing to do ourselves. And one thing that we ask teachers to do is to welcome us into their classroom, to observe them and, and give them feedback to, to provide some coaching, which is, you know, an, an, an important element of effective PL as well. But them inviting us in and welcoming us in, that's a, that's a big deal. And it's a big deal because it can be nerve wracking for teachers this was a big deal because, yeah, that in-person support or coaching seems to be such a critical element of effective PL. So then, you know, on the back of that, one change that we made to our PL program is that wherever it's possible and feasible, a first visit to teachers at a school involves us demonstrating in their classrooms uh, rather than us observing them. And it's, you know, that's, that's stressful for us to go in and, and teach students that we don't know in, in front of groups of teachers. But we also know that that's that's really helpful uh, for them. It also shows that we respect them, that we're not asking them to do anything that we don't do ourselves. Um, yeah, and, and the feedback from, from teachers has been really consistent that actually seeing that in action, seeing the strategies in action, seeing those demonstrations and seeing them in their unique context has been particularly helpful. Uh, also highlighting that these can be used in these can, uh, these strategies that we're advocating for can be effective uh, strategies in any any context and uh, the work of the Kimberley Schools Project 
shows that they can be effective in remote communities. The work that we do um, in Canberra Goulburn shows that it can be effective in affluent schools in the nation's capital. So across that breadth, these are effective strategies and going in and implementing them in different contexts helps to, to highlight that point. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you've, you've realised there is just how important it is to help our teachers actually see a concrete example of, of what we're mm. talking about. You know, we can give yep. them all of this theory and it can sound yep. great, um, but for a lot of them, they still can't make that clear connection as to, okay, so what does this actually mean for me in terms of what do I need to do in the classroom? So I think, yeah, it's a really good move that you guys have made where you're demonstrating. Um, and it also shows, you know, a bit of vulnerability from your side as well, you yeah. know, that yeah. that you're willing to put yourselves out there and and things could quite <laughs> easily go pear-shaped. And I'm sure you probably had a couple of examples <laughs> oh, of that. Too. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, oh, it's but that's kind of, of part of it too. Yeah. It is part of it because that's the... The reality of teaching that yeah. it doesn't always and it rarely goes perfectly right there's always little uh, things that go wrong or little mistakes uh, that we make so uh, I guess making those in when, when we demonstrate helps as well um, yeah I guess when we when we first started it's interesting um, as a little tangent when we first started demonstrating you know we felt so much pressure um, and, you know, it's stressful, but we, so, you know, we've got our ego in the way a little bit where we we thought well, it's really important to be impressive, you know, and be slick in the classroom yeah. and for nothing to go wrong. So we'd, we'd trot out the things that we'd know would be really slick. And, uh, but then we realized actually that's not the most helpful thing because you can kind of set this bar that seems unachievable for teachers. So actually we, we had to slap ourselves around a little bit and go, no, no. Yeah, we weren't actually demonstrating how we actually usually teach. So we had to go yeah. back and how would we actually usually teach and let's be realistic about this and, and have this be a true reflection of, of our teaching. Uh, and then, yeah, I guess it, what happens when you do that is you, you do make more mistakes and, and little things pop up, but teachers appreciate seeing that. Absolutely. Yeah. So what have you, you kind of learned from, um, you know, the responses of teachers in terms of, you know, their common misconceptions that you've come across or um, areas that, that teachers have really uh, appreciated seeing? Uh, I, well, one thing, it's, it's, it's funny because, yeah, we, well, I, there's kind of like some, some teachers kind of recognise the fact that there's this crossover between the classroom practices that we advocate for, evidence-based classroom practices, and actually what we're doing in the professional learning. So that discussion there. So modelling, demonstrating is an important element of effective classroom instruction, but it's also an important element of effective professional learning, right? Um, so, yeah, I guess another example of that is, is spaced and sustained learning. You know, so spaced practice is an important aspect of effective classroom teaching. So, and if we relate that to PL, we know that one of PL doesn't work. So, you know, effective PL needs to involve multiple learning opportunities that are, that are spaced over time. Um, and, and we talk about it being spaced and supported professional learning and the support comes from those uh, in-person visits, which we, we think are uh, really important and really impactful as well. Um, I didn't. I know I didn't quite answer your question there. Sorry. Um, but, that's uh, right. Yeah, I guess so. You know, in terms of when when teachers are attending your professional learning, um, you know, or they're seeing you in action, what sorts of mm. things are, are are they kind of coming across as like their aha moments? You know, and, and the things that have a, a big impact on them that that seem to kind of um, yeah answer some questions that they might have had before. Mm. Yeah, so there's a there's a range of different things. So you know, like so sometimes we work with really experienced teachers, and what we find for really experienced teachers is often they're implementing a lot of the strategies already, and they've come about that through trial and error. Yeah. And then the the PL that we deliver comes as this reinforcement of those ideas. But then they're able to go, you know, actually to prioritize the things that they're doing that they now know are most effective, and to I guess deprioritize some of the other things that might be be less effective so it really helps them to to hone their practice so the aha moments for them are like oh that's that's why this thing that i was doing works with those students yeah uh, and then we work with other teachers as well that are that are less experienced and you know there there's just a, a range of different aha moments you know sometimes it comes from um 
individual students who have started to engage much more in learning and have started to be much more successful. Uh, so they, you know, the contrast sometimes with individual students can be quite stark when the teachers start to implement these strategies. So I know one example uh, of, of Jared's was that um, had, a, had a student that was really struggling and it was really simple advice, you know, like what about the classroom layout? What if you put your desks in rows? What if you seat this student here? And that alone made such a big difference to that student's behaviour and the engagement and their participation to the point where the allied health professional might have been a speech here or, or something was was really surprised at uh, how the change in that student from that simple change, which aligns with cognitive science. You know, when the desk arrangement was a bit looser, uh, the student found it much harder to focus, and that's because of all the distractions that exist. So, yeah, teachers are able to, to justify these decisions uh, with cognitive science, and then notice the input um, on this on their students. So it's actually really interesting because I really like that the, the work of Thomas Guski. So um, he did that research into whether teachers change their beliefs before their practice or their practice before their beliefs. And really early on, we thought that it was really important to, to try convince teachers to change their beliefs during the PL workshops that we were running. But then we realised it's, it's not an actually achievable thing to do because what Guski found was that when teachers actually change their beliefs, there's a common order in what that in, in, in the way that that occurs. So they firstly, they participate in that professional learning. Next, they, they kind of implement the strategies and they notice changes in student achievement or engagement or behaviour or all of those things. And then it's that that is the catalyst for the changes in their beliefs. So now what we do is instead of trying to change beliefs straight up, is, is the things that we invest our time and our energy in are the things that might support teachers to implement the strategies in their classroom. So we really focus on doing what we can to support teachers to just have a go because we know that if, if they don't have a go, if they don't implement the practices in some way, then there's no chance of them actually changing their beliefs and for those practices to be sustained over time. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that's one thing is that, yeah, the, the the aha moments that you refer to them as is that important point in that that process where teachers are recognising the, the differences in their student achievement or their engagement. And, you know, that can happen in, in so many different ways. Um, but it's those moments that, that lead to, teachers implementing those practices for a, for a longer term. Um, yeah, so uh, another thing that kind of links to that, to that Guski research, I think, that we've learnt, um, circling back to another question, prior question, is um, how important it is to really carve out a chunk of time within a workshop for teachers to work together to create uh, or plan together or create a resource. So a great example is we have one workshop in which we focus on daily review. And uh, in that, you know, we outline a range of strategies that teachers can use to present content to students in daily review. And then what we started doing is we, we started to, you know, towards the end of the workshop is give a good chunk of time where we give them templates. We give them examples for them to, to work together and create a daily review with the goal being that you can implement, you can literally implement this daily review that you create tomorrow. That's, that's your goal. Think about what you might teach or you might want to review tomorrow with one of your classes or in one learning area and create something for that. You can kind of imagine the impact of that, right, in terms of achieving that goal of supporting teachers to implement the practices or supporting them to have a go, you're really going to maximize the chances that teachers go away and actually have a go if they walk away from that workshop with something something tangible that they can actually use to implement the practices the, that very next day. Um, so yeah, everything that we do is is kind of trying to trying to reduce work um, reduce workload for teachers and, and and things like that so that they can support the practices and. And I guess, you know, the curriculum is another example of that, you know, something that helps to support teachers to actually implement the practices. Yeah, you know, you, you've just given a really good example there of, um, you know, how giving teachers time to collaborate and, you know, giving them some examples of what they can use um, and, and the time is really important yeah. as well. Um, yeah. You know, what other things can, you know, so for schools that aren't able to engage with shaping minds and, and get you guys to work with them, um, what 
what sorts of things could schools actually be doing to um, deliver more effective professional learning? Yeah, so, I mean, if, if schools, you know, in the absence of, of having a provider do that, if, if schools are running that in-house, they, they've got to think um, really hard about workload, but also working memory. You know, like we, we talk a lot about students having uh, cognitive load and, and you talk about this before, teachers experience cognitive load too. So we, we just can't go at it at a, like, you know, um, everything at once type of approach. So I guess, you know, it's another crossover between effective classroom practice and effective PL, isn't it? So a well-sequenced um, curriculum. So in the, in professional learning, that's like a curriculum in terms of uh, teaching strategies. So really thinking about uh, what do we want to implement and breaking those down into uh, instructional units, you know, one focus at a time that we might have as a whole staff um, and, and delivering that PL or training teachers up in that, supporting them to actually implement those practices, uh, giving them feedback in, in, in some form. And, and then obviously, you know, moving on to the, the next element in terms of that um pl program or or end goal that you might want to uh, achieve with your staff so that's that's the most important thing is to have a really uh, clear, a clear plan about what you actually want teachers to be implementing and then a, a clear plan about how you're going to go about that and how you're going to support teachers to implement those practices in their classrooms yeah good points and, and some important things for school leaders to think about um look Jordan, it's been great chatting to you today. And, and I just had one last question. Um, just wanted to know, you know, what other bits of knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have, uh, whether that has been, you know, information that's been transformational for your own development or just common misconceptions that you've come across? But, yeah, what other bits of information or knowledge do you feel more teachers need to have? Yeah, I, I uh, yeah, obviously I listened to your previous episodes, so I know <laughs> I knew this question was coming, but I kind of find, I found it, uh, you know, there's so many ideas within evidence-based teaching or, you know, the cognitive science that we could talk about. I found it really hard to pick one to focus on. Um, you could pick so more I thought than I, one. I, might, <laughs> I thought I might just share some of the, the texts that had a big influence on us and our understanding. Yeah. And obviously many of the things that we could talk about can be found in in those uh, texts as well so uh you know in terms of learning more about cognitive science so a paper that had a really impact on us was kirshner sweller and clark's why minimal guidance during instruction does not work yeah uh, and then later on ollie ollie's book cognitive load theory in action is great um too have you read uh sarah cottingham's blogs yes yeah over-practice. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Over-practice is the name of that. So I, I think she is a genius, you know. So she just so skillfully breaks down uh, those ideas within the cognitive science and, and writes about them in such an incredibly digestible way. So absolutely recommend people uh, have a flick through that blog. It's, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. And I think I saw on Twitter that she's got a book coming out soon. So that'll be uh, one worth reading, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, in terms of just pedagogy edi by hollingsworth and yabara specific instruction by archer and hughes has been super helpful and then if we talk specifically about maths instruction uh, i think you really can't go past uh, craig barton's how i wish i taught maths you know the, the way he structures that book so it links heavily to the evidence base but the way he structures that book in terms of you know what he used to do uh, the evidence base and then how or new practices or what he does now, which is really talking about classroom practices that link to the evidence base is just, I think, such a super helpful way uh, to present that information for teachers. So that's a great one as well, specific to maths. Yeah, um, I'm sure you've, you've added a lot of books uh, into people's Amazon carts just now, but, uh, <laughs> you know, definitely, you know, highly recommend those. Uh, they're, they're, they're really good books and um just lastly, I know I said that was going to be the last question, but I thought it'd be useful <laughs> for, for people to know, um, you know, what sorts of things should they be looking out for from Shaping Minds um, in the future? You know, what, what other interesting projects do you have in the pipeline? Yeah, so, well, I guess first and foremost, you know, the, the, that curriculum is, you know, a working document. And, uh, you know, when I was listening to Karen's app, you know, there was there's some ideas that I can see are worth really thinking about and incorporating within uh, particularly like the foundation or the, the early years 
documents. So, you know, we're, we're always learning and those documents are, are, are not perfect and they're going to be continually updated. So keep a look on that. Uh, we've also, you know, in relation to that, we'll, we promised a frequently asked questions document, um, which we we have. So we'll, we'll release that hopefully in the next week or so, but don't hold me to that, people. Uh, and, yeah, so I guess the other projects that we're working on are really or thinking about are really all geared towards achieving our goal of, of supporting teachers to implement these evidence-based practices. So, yeah, so uh, things like yeah, resource creation and exemplars, um, things like um, videos of classroom practices and, and all those types of things that you can imagine are helpful for teachers are kind of projects that we have on our, our, our wish list uh, of, of things to do and we'll hopefully slowly pick those off and and yeah achieve what we want to achieve in terms of supporting teachers um jordan thanks a lot for today it's been great chatting to you and and you know look forward to meeting you in person uh sometime and uh, you know <laughs> yeah. we, can, we can talk further about all the uh the nerdy cognitive science stuff that we like yeah, talking absolutely. about and um yeah but thanks for your time yeah likewise to you and hey thanks so much for having me on what a way to get out of a negative spiral by introducing Lorraine Hammond and John Fleming to your school. What a serendipitous moment. However, it's clear from that moment on, Jordan has left very little up for chance. He is extremely meticulous in his preparation, decision-making and delivery so that every aspect of what Shaping Minds has to offer has been planned and it's obvious as to why they have become highly sought-after professional learning providers. Here are my key takeaways. Simply implementing retrieval and spaced practice can give our students an immediate boost. The importance of having a strong understanding of how learning happens in order to make evidence-informed decisions for every little aspect of your teaching, from desk arrangement to pair shares. I loved his analogy of linking explicit instruction with driving a car from point to point and how we want to take the most efficient route to decrease the extraneous load on working memory. I enjoyed going through his thought process for structuring Shaping Minds Mathematics curriculum. Designing a sequential curriculum is extremely complex and it's clear that a lot of thought has gone into it. Currently in my role, the majority of my work is working with teachers and supporting their development and I loved how Jordan emphasised the importance of respecting teachers and the work they do. He mentioned Thomas Gusky's work and how teacher attitudes don't change until they actually see improvements in student learning outcomes. So they try to do and whatever they can to help teachers just get started and have a go. I also like how he normalised the fact that not all lessons will go to plan, even for them, and that's okay. He also highlighted for Peel to be spaced over time to provide multiple learning opportunities. Next episode I speak with Dr Nathaniel Swain. I've been fortunate to have had the opportunity to collaborate with Nathaniel on a number of projects over the last couple of years and knew that he'd be a great guest to have on the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. I promise you that he doesn't disappoint and we even have a bit of fun while we're at it. So that's it from me for today and as always stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.